0: All right, before we get to today's podcast, I wanted to quickly address what's going on in our society. Uh, My instinct has typically been to stay in my lane, you know, to not really talk about things I don't really know about. Not to just spout off opinions on everything. But in this specific spot, I don't think staying silent is necessarily the right thing uh, for me when I have this platform. Um, It's sad, man. It's really hard to watch the George Floyd Murder video. Obviously, we have a long way to go in our country when it comes to police brutality and how minorities are treated by some police. Like, we have to solve it. I don't think I have a lot to contribute to the solution, but I do think empathy and compassion and understanding of someone else's situation goes a long way. And the turning point for me, you know, a while back was when I kind of zoomed out and realized just how plain lucky. I am, you know, period. I was born to two middle-class white parents. I didn't do anything to earn that, to deserve that. But immediately, you know, through nothing that I earned, I never had to worry about the cops not being on my side. I mean, hell, I got pulled over when I was seventeen with a case of empty beer, a case of empty beer cans in my car, and the cop just let us go. So, as someone who has played. A ton of poker and a ton of DFS. I love merit based outcomes, right? Like you work hard, you're smart, you play well, you're going to win in the long run. You know, there will be a ton of variance and luck along the way, but in the end, it's earned. And that makes sense to me. But I didn't earn the right to never have to worry about clean water, to get a good education, to never worry about the cops treating me unjustly. I was just born into that. So if we zoom out and think, hell, I just ran incredibly hot at the outset of my life and it easily, easily could have gone a different way if I wasn't so lucky. Well, hopefully we can find, you know, real empathy and compassion for others and compassion for other people's situations. All right. Hope that makes sense. On with the show. Hello, and welcome to episode 69 of the official EstablishTheRun.com podcast. My name is Adam Levitan. I'm one of the co-founders here at ETR. And today we have a very, very special guest. This is a young man who studied electrical engineering, biomedical engineering at Duke University, a young man I became aware of in what's now, I guess, the old school poker streets. He left poker to climb the ladder of the finance world where he now has his own options trading firm named Caption Partners. It is Jason Strasser. Jason, what's going on?
1: What's going on, man? Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, really, really excited to have you here. There were three reasons I really wanted to have Jason on. I know Jason's not the kind of typical guest we have on here where we talk about sports and fantasy and NFL and stuff. But first of all, like the three reasons I'd say, the first one is during this pandemic, you know, as sports have been shut down, I, you know, like many others, have dabbled in the stock market for literally the first time in my entire life. Like I've had, you know, my mutual funds and my SEP IRA before. I've never actually bought a stock until this pandemic. I'm sure Jason is aware that many others are like me. And like many others, I have absolutely zero. And when I say zero, absolutely zero clue what I'm doing. Uh The second reason was I heard Jason on Brandon Adams. Obviously, Brandon Adams, friend of the show. You can go back to DFS Edge and find my interview with him. I absolutely love Brandon. And Jason went on and these were like, I mean, just two guys way above my head. I could barely understand what they were talking about when it came to finance and the markets. But I really loved it. I came away thinking that I have a bunch of questions, you know, not for people on Jason and Brandon's level, but for donkeys like me. So that's the second reason I wanted to have Jason on. And and the third, I just think there's a lot to be learned from poker and from trading that's also applicable to DFS. So I wanted to pick Jason's brain on that. Does that all make sense to you, Jason? I mean, I mean, I, I'm assuming you're aware that all these donkeys are now flooding the market.
1: You know, it's been amazing. So if you look at like Robinhood, Robin Hood releases stats on like how many accounts are open and other brokerage firms, same thing. It it's actually insane the numbers. You know, we're talking about like millions and millions of brokerage accounts that did not exist three months ago showing up. Um I think I think you're right. Like just like dfs like you know people that go on like a hot run for a short period of time like you can't draw conclusions from that same thing's happening in markets right now there's a lot of people that are making money it's so easy (laughs) and you know what that's like i mean it's just very short term like the the amount of variance like when you guys played first of all i'm the first dfs loser you've had on this podcast for (laughs) sure like i have to be the first one um but that being said you know when you when you fire out uh you know Let's just say, how many lineups do you fire out on a Sunday? I mean, how many how many entries do you fire out on a Sunday?
0: Yeah, I mostly play one team just for a lot, but a lot of people will say they're playing 150.
1: Okay, so if you're playing 150 and you're firing out, it's actually you get to a reasonable sample size. Maybe not an NBA, not an NFL, but maybe in like an NBA or MLB, you'll get to a reasonable sample size that you can draw real res, you know conclusions from your results. Markets, I mean, you're not even like you're not even getting. You could argue you're getting one data point, you know, for a lot of these trades. Um, It's just noise, really, what you're looking at right now. And so, but yeah, I think it's great. I mean, I think interest in markets is great. It's good for my business because people come in there, they start trading things. Um, We take the other side of trades. So like a lot of times when people, less sophisticated people show up to trade options, it's good for people like myself. But I also think it's more interesting. Like I'm just around town. I'm being asked, like, you know, this is kind of random. And I'm just, this is, this is actually happening all over my life. Like random family members are calling me up. You know, I got all sorts of stock picks coming out my ass. So <laughs> it's it's cool. I, I, I like it. It's been a fun, like I, I was saying to Brandon, like, I feel kind of guilty that since coronavirus happened, like I've been enjoying myself so much, but like the truth is, is like, it's been a miserable time. It's sad, but like my work side of things has been really, really interesting. And I'm not like scared to say that it's been a really fascinating and fun few months
0: on that. Sure. perspective. For sure. And, and I mean, I have takes on that about why the DFS world thinks that they're all of a sudden Gordon Gecko, but I want to get into all that in uh, a minute. First, I want to give people some background on Jason for those of them that don't know. So uh, you went to Duke. How did you find poker? How seriously were you playing poker uh, kind of in those years after the moneymaker boom?
1: Yeah. Freshman year, I barely knew how to play. It was terrible. Uh, I met a guy at like a Duke cash game, just like playing for like $1, $1 or whatever. And I was like, how bad am I? He's like, you're, you're really fucking bad. <laughs> so I was like, okay, like, how do I get better? And he showed me two plus two, which is like, I don't know. That's like, a, I don't know. People you know what that is anymore, but basically a mm-hmm. poker bulletin board website that, that was very big back then. And I just started posting hands. I think I, in my life, I have 5,000 posts or something on two plus two and zero of them were fucking around. Like they were all content. So, so yeah, so I was, you know, I basically, met people through that network, uh, Alex Jacob, the Jeopardy champion was one of my buddies back then, you know, Justin Bonomo, Ariel Schneller, there's just a lot of people like old school, like washed up poker players, but people that were in my universe back then, and uh, got better. And yeah, I basically got, got really into it. So my grades were like, kind of so so like they, I was I had a hard major, like, I appreciate you calling out my hard major, my parents would appreciate that. But I, I really was not a very focused student, like I was gambling. Uh, and it was serious, like I would have like, there'd be some players that would win the Sunday Million and then they'd start playing $5,000 Heads Up, sitting and so they had no idea what they are doing. So mm-hmm. I used to have like my friends, I'd say, hey, I'll give you a hundred bucks if you text me if this person's online. So I would be in the middle of class, I'd get a text, I'd run out and play the guy Heads Up. It's like, it, it was like, I was a bad student. I spent my summers in Vegas. So like my resume for applying for a job was like, you know, World Series of Poker, you know, it, it was just, it was, it is what it is. But at the end of the day, like what I always tell people, if you're good at something, it could be DFS, it could be, poker, it could be badminton, it could be anything. I really feel like just standing out in some way in the world we live in now, like goes a long way. And like, you could be a great video game player, you could be anything, but just excelling at something really competitive, anyone who's hiring a bunch of people, they're gonna see like, if you go to get a job at Wall Street, there's like a zillion 4.0 people from Harvard, right? You can take your pick. Um, that doesn't really do much. Like standing out in a different way really goes a long way. So I feel like that was what poker was for me. And still to this day, like, when I go raise money when we first started caption people were like hey uh you know should you talk about poker you know some people think that's gambling like they're not going to put money in the fund and you know we sort of come a long way on that and you know and the world's changed a lot too like I think the world's changed in, in terms of how it views DFS how it views poker how it views things like gaming like I think the world's sort of come to it's a lot different 10 years ago than it is now but nowadays I think like yeah like it's an awesome thing to have on your resume. So, that was for me. It was, I had crappy grades, but poker had me still helped me stand out. And then I got a job on Wall Street and went from there.
0: Yeah. And I, I think there's always been something on Wall Street with poker, like the Susquehanna firm here in Philly, like, you know, obviously makes their uh, young people play poker. I have played against plenty of them in Philly, a ton of smart guys and stuff like that. So, I thought it was that there was something with that. But, you know, Jason's being humble. He's very successful in poker. Why stop playing? I mean, why go walk the line and get uh, a real job, as they say?
1: Um, I sort of made the decision that I could go back to poker if I needed it. I didn't know how much poker would deteriorate. Like, you know, going back to 2007 when I made this decision, like, I, no, I had no idea how fast it would all fall apart. Poker, you know, poker. I mean, you can you can look at it however you want, but the way I look at it is like poker 2006, seven, five, six, seven, eight was just. Way better. You know, like the amount of people making a million dollars in poker back then versus today. I mean, I I don't even know how to compare the numbers, but it's got to be like today, like 10 and back Mm -hmm. then like, you know, 500 or something. Mm -hmm. So, uh, but I made the decision that I could go back to poker and wall street is one of those places where it's tricky to get in when you're not a kid. So like when you're 22, 23, they'll hire you. They'll make you get coffee and run errands and, and be someone's bitch for a few years and learn, learn the trade, which is what I did. And I actually made a post on two plus two about that. And people were like, I don't understand. You like you made seven figures one year and now you're getting this guy coffee. And I was like, whatever. Like I make my decisions, you make your decisions. I think this has a lot of potential and this is the way in. And I have to go to make 70 grand a year to start on the way in. And that's what I did. So, um, Yeah, so I, I just made that decision and I went with it. And uh, I've always done that. Like I did that with, when I started caption too. Like I left a lot of money behind at a bank to to do my own thing. and you know, I feel like that's just a better way of living. Like not being tied. I always feel like the thing with money is like, as long as you have enough, where you can sort of take some trips and eat some food that you like, and like you know, live a comfortable life, pay a rent. Like the difference between that and like triple that. I, I don't think your life's like three times better. Like I think if you can improve your work, your happiness at work, and things like that, that goes a long way. So I always sort of approach it like that. And um, yeah, and I, I and then poker fell apart. So like when poker fell apart, I was like, oh, I did the right thing.
0: Yeah. Run hotter with the, with the way. Poker went. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so you left poker, what job did you take? Uh, what did you learn? How did you start? What was it like going from being your own boss playing, you know, nosebleed stakes poker to getting coffee, as you said?
1: Yeah. So I started at Morgan Stanley bank in New York and I was an, an analyst on the trading desk and basically I knew nothing about trading. So I was like you, I didn't know anything like literally knew nothing. And you learn sort of through osmosis through being around other people trading. Um, And the thing about Wall Street trading is there isn't like um, a a seat waiting for you. Like there's not like a a portfolio that they're grooming you to trade. It's like there's portfolios. There's senior guys that are trading them. And you're the junior guy. And you're just sort of sitting there like, all right, all right, like, let me just learn. And then after a while, you kind of need to run hot because there's just not a book waiting for you. I joined in July of 2007. And the world fell apart for real in 2008, and so I consider myself super hot on on timing in my life because, like, if you just move things around by like a year or two, I don't even have a job, basically, in Wall Street. Um, but I got that job, and then shit went to hell. And the last person they fire at a bank when things are going to hell is the kid making no money that knows how to turn the computers on and do everything. So, like, there was a lot of like turnover, but. Like my job was like super safe. Like, I, you know, you're, you're like rock solid when you're, you're in that spot. And so 2008 happened and then 2009, like a book opened up for me and I, and I took it. And I, that's when I started trading my own. So I had like a, I traded the materials book. That was my first book. And then I had industrials and some other things. And then I had a you know portfolio with my name on it and I was responsible for what goes in that book and the day-to-day in, in a job like that at a bank is basically people calling the bank saying, Hey, I want to buy or sell a lot of options, but compared to like what you're trading on Robinhood or E-Trade, like put like 10 or or thousand X that, that size. It's really hard to do that on E-Trade. It's really hard to do that on interactive brokers. If you want to trade big, it's like a human, human thing. So people are calling up Morgan Stanley saying, I want to buy this. I want to sell this. Then the salesperson is calling me up and I'm saying, here's what I'll price it. Here's what I'll price it. Just like a sports betting, like a bookie, like basically it's the same thing. Like you hope there's a roughly efficient market. You're capturing a vig, and you're moving on. So that's what I did to start my career. And it was super cool. I mean, like you're moving like tons of money around, big risk. And um, it was a good firm with good people. I mean, the guys that hired me, one of the guys had like blackjack experience. And they were very like, you know, like the gambling fit right in in that community. And what I would like to say is Susquehanna is probably the best firm out there in terms of options trading. For sure, they're the biggest. And I think the best. And they hire like tons of people with poker background and they teach everyone poker. So I think, yeah, go hand in hand.
0: I mean, yeah, hearing you talk, and I was going to ask you about this later, but hearing you talk, I mean, it sounds like you're on the same page as me where poker and DFS and sports betting at a high level is no different than Wall Street. But for whatever reason, the, uh, our society thinks that, uh, it's an honorable job to be on Wall Street while, you know, you play poker, you bet sports. Well, at least 10 years ago or five years ago, you were on the fringes. You're a scumbag or whatever. Is it really that big a difference between what goes on? on Wall Street and what goes on in the gambling streets?
1: No, and I, I I know the poker world, I don't know the DFS world that well, but I would say the poker world's a more ethical place than the finance world. I mean, like, maybe it's just because the poker world, there's not that much new blood in poker. There's a lot more older people because there's not as much like ability for young people to come up in the game like there used to be. So like, you really just have your reputation and you screw it up one time, it's over. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I I find, I think poker players, I, I the average poker player, now obviously we all know there's some tales everywhere here, but the average poker player I think is more ethical than the average person in Wall Street. And and I think that view is completely backwards. I think it's harder to make money in poker. It's harder to make money in DFS than on Wall Street. There's so many people that work on Wall Street that have way less talent. They put in way less hours to what they do for a living than what you guys have to do to make money in that. Because it's, yeah, it just don't, don't. It, it's just harder what you guys do than, than, than what most people do on Wall Street. So yeah,
0: but then why why does society think that Wall Street is so ethical and poker players are such scumbags? I mean, how, how did we get here?
1: I think you go back in time like what people think of when my parents think of what a sports betting or Sports bettor is or my parents think of what a poker player is You know, they thinking about a guy at the track for you or whatever and they're thinking about I don't even know what a poker player is some guy smoking cigars or whatever I just don't I just think that I think the world's come a long way on this front. I don't know how you feel about yeah. that, but no, like, I feel like it's come a ton on this and I'm really excited. I think 10 years from now, I don't think there'll be a big thing, a big thing, a big stigma associated with yeah. other careers like
0: that. Well, I'd also say that the world has probably come a long way in looking more poorly on you guys, whether that's fair or not. What, look at the world, you know, after 2008 and everything is looking at Wall Street guys and being like, well, geez, these guys maybe aren't the most ethical either, as you said. So, um, you know, I think- Yeah, for sure. I mean,
1: like there's a ton of- uh, there's a ton of shit that Wall Street deserves to get and a ton of shit that doesn't deserve to get. Yeah. And sometimes it's not really, in my opinion, like applied correctly. Um, but yeah, I kind of, I agree with you. Like Wall Street is definitely not as cool as it was 20 years ago. I mean, watch the Gordon Gecko movie. Like that yeah. was pretty sweet. Like that's uh, not what it's like. <laughs>
0: it's one of the best. Uh, anyways, okay, so you have Morgan Stanley, you get your yeah. book, but then you decide to leave and start your own firm. You started in Oklahoma City, an options firm. I don't really want to get into options, uh, but give the people an option for dummy, options for dummies overview. What does that mean? And how did you end up in Oklahoma City?
1: Yeah, so this, that, the, so I started captioning actually in New York. And then two years after we started captioning, we did a deal with a guy named Aubrey McClendon. Uh, there's a story at CNBC, like a tiny crappy one, a story about this. But basically, um, it's a Duke guy that I knew I had a connection with. And we were really small. We were, and at that point, when you started a business, as you know, like you pretty much will do anything to make it work. And that's how I was with Caption. You know, I started when I was really young with my with the guy I went to Duke with, and um, uh, this guy from, from that we had a connection with at Duke was like, "Hey, I'll put in some money. I'll help you raise money in Oklahoma City." And I wouldn't moved anywhere. And mm-hmm. I moved here. I actually I love it here. Like I can't even imagine moving back. But. Uh, But yeah, so that's the short version of why Oklahoma City. Options for dummies. Options are not like the most complicated, intuitive thing to understand. Um, Basically, it's the right to buy or sell something in the future. So let's take the house that you're in right now, right? Let's just say, I'll make a number. Let's say your house worth a million bucks. I say, all right, Adam, I got a piece of paper here. It says I can buy your house for $2 million anytime in the next 20 years. Piece of paper. We can both agree that that's worth something, right? Cause maybe your house is worth 3 million or whatever. So I can, mm-hmm. that, that's worth something. So there's a piece of paper. We know it's worth something. We don't know how much it's worth. That right, that option, when you price that, you have to think about things. And the, the main thing that you're thinking about in this case would be how volatile are housing prices in Philly, right? Mm-hmm. If housing prices are really, really volatile, like like let's say you're in Hong Kong, for example, that's a very volatile real estate market. Okay that piece of paper is worth a lot more. Oklahoma City, kind of quieter. You would think it's more volatile than it is because of the oil, but it's kind of quiet. So, you know, that piece of paper is not worth very much. And so that's all options are. They're the right to buy or sell something in the future and they exist. Here's the other thing. It's like, people don't even know why these things exist. Like they don't exist for people to punt around and gamble. Like there, there's a reason they exist, right? They're, they're basically a good way to transfer risk. So let's just say you're an airline and if oil goes doubles, you're, you're, you got, you're in trouble. So you can buy a call option, which is the right to buy crude oil at a certain or you know, jet fuel at a certain price. That's and the guy that's selling it to you is is taking the other side of that. So it's a basically a market that allows risk transfer. You know, people that own a stock, they want to hedge. Okay, there's there's a market there for it. Mm-hmm. That's why options exist. So basically they're a really easy way to move risk around. There's no parallel in sports betting options, I don't think. Like I thought about that for a little bit, but Really, it's just a great way for like someone to manage risk. And that's why yeah. they exist.
0: Well, there is a secondary market for futures bets in sports betting now where let's right. say I have a ticket on 500 to one on the Eagles doing the Super Bowl. And now that's oh, worth, I see. now how much will somebody give me for that 500 to one ticket? It sounds kind of similar. And there is like a growing secondary market for those kind of tickets. I don't know. Yeah, I mean,
1: there's, you know, it's just the thing about options that's beautiful is that is that people that get involved with them they have that they have that experience where they put in like a hundred bucks and they get back like five thousand and it's like crack you know like there are people that just you know that feeling it's like winning a poker tournament or whatever doing well in a dfs tournament it's like you can't really get like there aren't many things in life that give you that feeling and so i think that's partially why like a lot of people just dive in because they always look very tempting and uh and if you buy options, the truth is, is you only lose what you put in. So it's not like this thing where if you're just buying options, you know, you, you sort of know what you're playing with, like a buy a new poker tournament or whatever. And so there's a lot of things that like scratch the same sort of itch.
0: Yeah. Okay. Let's get to the good stuff. I, I have okay. so many, I have so many donkey questions for you. I think, I think the first question, the question on everyone's mind is how in the hell is the market going up? I mean, just straight crushing for the last couple of months when the world is in shambles. Unemployment rate, you know, businesses dying off, people dying at a ridiculous rate, riots. How is the market continuing to absolutely crush for the last two months?
1: So don't ask me where the market's going from here. But so far, you know, the markets are forward-looking. So like when you buy a stock, the market is pricing in future expectations for that stock. So when DraftKings is trading at thirteen billion, right? Um, people are not looking at them and seeing they made whatever hundred million in revenue last year. And, and you know, what people are doing is they're projecting out, they're saying, okay, maybe in four years they're making a billion and then whatever, whatever, whatever. Same thing in the stock market. People are basically ignoring right now. <laughs> like everyone is two years from now. So that, that's, that's how I would think about it. Like or a year or two years from now, and they're looking at the world and they're saying, okay, in the last month, by the way, I think that sort of expectations with the market is that the society as a whole is going to be okay with some deaths here. Like, like that's the big difference is like, I live in Oklahoma city where it's pretty dang wide open right now. People are in gyms, people are in restaurants, people are out and about. Um, they're going to be a pickup in cases and a pickup in deaths because of this. And nobody seems to care. Mm-hmm. And I think that's sort of being priced into the market here a little bit is that if you go back to when Corona first hit, there were some like, we're just gonna be locked down for like two years. So vaccine, there was some of that being priced in. Um, there was, yeah. So I, I think that the big changes are, and the other thing is the the federal government. So like the Fed, excuse me, um, the Federal Reserve Bank. Like they stepped in, and and Brandon Adams wrote a thing on it. They posted on Twitter the other day, but they started buying junk bonds. That was really the bottom of the market as well, because effectively, when the Fed is buying junk bonds, they're uh, decreasing the interest rate the crappiest companies borrow at, and the most distressed companies are borrowing at. And what that effectively did was it's make a mockery of like free market, free economy. Like this is not a free market. This is like heads I win, tails I I don't lose. Like that's what's happening. Because the Fed basically is backstopping, you know, they're forcing interest rates lower for everyone, which effectively just forces people into equities. And yeah, if you look at the world right now um, and you think people are starting to think, well, a year from now, two years from now, we're okay. Interest rates are 0%. Stocks could be double from here. That's how people are looking at it right now.
0: Yeah. You mentioned uh efficiency when you're talking about options. And I want to ask about this whole concept of efficiency because people love to say, oh, the stock market is incredibly efficient. I- I'm not sure what they mean, right? I- when I think of efficiency, I think of like a closing line in the NFL where there's huge money on both sides. And that means that it's efficient. But I don't think that these, I don't know, maybe I'm just such a donkey that I don't see it, but like how can the market be efficient when like Penn, you know, PNN, the, the barstool affiliated It goes down down to $4 and like, like these airlines are prices. If they're like all going out of business, like we know people are going to fly again. We know people are going to go to casinos again. How does it ever get to a point where it's like, they're so, so, so low. And is the stock market actually
1: efficient? So there's, there's two things here, right? One is the efficient two is what happened with Penn and, and, and those things. So obviously if you took an economic class, which I barely did, um, you know, they'll teach you the efficient market hypothesis and that exists sort of the same way, like you said, with NFL, like a lot of money gets on both sides and you get to sort of a fair equilibrium point. That's the idea of the same thing with efficient market hypothesis. But if you think about NFL, when the line first comes out, there are people that's, that are doing a lot of work that are then pushing the line to where they think it should go. Right. And those people get paid, right. They get paid for their work. You know, they, they showed up and they were the ones that made that line efficient. They did the homework. The guy that came in on you know, Saturday nights and place his bet benefited from the people earlier in the week doing the work. And it's the same thing in markets, hypothetically. Um, people are doing the work. People like myself are going out there. They're trying to find things that are too low, too high, undervalued, overvalued, putting these trades on, pushing things closer to fair value so that when the random person comes in that doesn't know anything, comes into the market, things are closer to reality. Like every, everyone that doesn't know anything about the markets benefits from professionals in the market helping them get prices somewhat normal that being said there's some insane things happening right now and like efficient markets you know like this idea that everything is efficient is insane like there are things that are efficient and then there are things that are not efficient and it's it's kind of like like if you think about the nfl like imagine you know there's only a certain number of games every sunday there's actually like a, a very good chance those lines are very very efficient. The market, though, there's just so many more participants. Mm-hmm. There's so many people doing so many crazy things that you don't get anywhere close to that level of efficiency. It's like your market in the NFL is infinitely more efficient than the market for sure. And so you're kind of right. Like, and back to your question about Penn. You know, back back in the depths, if you look at Penn and any casino company, a casino company is typically borrowing something like four or five times what they make in profits every year. So they make 100 million, they have 500 million in debt, just ballpark uh, back then they thought that they would not be able to service their debt. So basically you shut down these casinos for a year. They don't have enough money. They run out of money. And then what? And if you ever run out of money and you can't pay your creditors, then you go bankrupt. The equity is a zero. So what was happening back then is people were like, they weren't saying like no one's going to go casino ever again. What they were saying was they're not, they're going to run out of money and they're not gonna be able to pay. And they're going to have to, they're going they're, they're going to go bankrupt. And, that was what people were saying was very possible back then. And the world's changed a lot in that regard. And airlines, you know, yeah, I don't know about this recent rally in airlines. you can like, I, I don't know. like if you look at the credit markets, they're still pricing at a very high chance of going bankrupt in, in airlines right now. So like, to be determined. But that was kind of the debate back then. And clearly the casinos, people, the market has decided they're not they're gonna be they're going to be opening up soon enough. They're going to be able to get some money, keep the creditors off their back, and be fine. That's where we are right now.
0: You mentioned the backstop that the government seems to be providing. Why can't, like, how would a company, how would an airline go out of business if there's all this available money? Like, the people are just not, their credit is so bad, people just aren't going to give them money, period, no matter what the rate
1: is. Is that it? Right. So airlines, you got to put in their own thing because the government can't just let the airlines go away. Right. The, right. the government has to make sure the airlines are functioning. And the airlines have a lot of rules. Like they have to do certain things. Like they, 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 you know how many like empty flights they ran in the last few months? Like if you and I were running an airline for business, for profit, we would say, we're not running that, but they, they have things they have to do. Right. Mm-hmm. So airlines are their own ballpark. And I always caution people whenever you're investing in something that's heavily government regulated or government involved, you're effectively betting on what the government's going to do. And if you go back to 2008, you know, AIG was a very famous, you know, big company that went bankrupt in 08. The government, when they bailed out AIG, AIG did all this dumb shit. The government bailed them out because they were systemically important. The government wiped out effectively the equity in AIG. So if you're a shareholder in AIG, you got wiped out. And that was what the government decided to do. Same thing in Citigroup 2008. 2008, the government bailed out Citigroup and they said, you're a 0 Your shareholders, zero effectively. Now, now the airline bailout this year, the... <laughs> they could have done that. They could have just said it's a zero. Um, but they did. And so there we are. Yeah. Like they, 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 one of the terms of all the, it's unclear whether the private money would have showed up to bail out the airlines. Um, cruise lines though, a lot of private money showed up for cruise lines. So there are things like people showed up and gave money to support certain industries, but airlines are their own are weird, man. See, I caution you- people with those.
0: You know you know what's sick is that i I don't know any of this, right? I didn't know a- anything about this, but I was just being a dumbass and saying, "Oh God, I mean airlines aren't going to go out of business they're they're priced at six dollars or whatever. like let me buy some. I have, I have no, literally no background whatsoever, but now I'm able to look like a genius because uh, I, I know so little like it, it almost doesn't even seem right. Um, anyway
1: well but 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 you know, there is something to be said when people were panicking like they were a couple months ago. History shows you that when people are panicking, taking the other side of that is usually a good bet. Sure. Uh, not always, but usually a good bet. So, like, in some ways, like, I, I don't think you should keep calling yourself a dumbass because you probably stepped in there when people were panicked selling certain things and you were buying. And, like, that's a good thing to do in the long run. Now, I'm not, I'm not judgment aside on the airlines, like, who knows how that's going to turn out. But um, there is a lot of money to be made in the long run stepping in in those situations.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, I want to zoom out. Uh, one thing I really love about poker and I really love about DFS is it's zero sum, right? Like, well, it's zero sum minus the rake, of course, minus right? Rake, but, yeah. but if I win, someone else loses. You know, if we're playing heads up and I win, you lose. Uh, the stock market, however, if I'm interpreting it correctly, and I, I need to ask you this, is positive sum, right? In other words, like the market over the long run is going to go up. So two people can make a trade and we both can win in theory. Is that the right way to look at it? Is it actually? positive sum, where because the market uh, is uh, theoretically going to go up, that uh, two people can actually win on the same
1: trade? I mean, for sure. Because if you think about, let's just simplify it. Say you buy a share of Apple, Okay, Apple pays a dividend and they do a share buyback. So those are two ways that as long as Apple sort of continues to do its thing, which on average, the companies in the US will continue to do their thing. Share buybacks are good because that's like, that's like if you had a DFS website and you had 10 partners, okay, you guys made some dough and one of your partners wanted out and you, so you took the money and you bought the one person out. And so now you have nine partners, no, sorry, eight partners, nine of you total. So that's a share buyback that adds value. Now you own more of the company, right? Um, exact same thing with, um, dividends. So that's just getting cash and the market as a whole is doing that. So like if you own stocks or you own a portfolio of stocks, On average, you know, the historical return is 7%. So if you go back the history of time, there's a positive carry to that. And there's no doubt that, like, just buying money, putting money in the stock market, closing your eyes, and showing up 30 years later is a winning play. Option market is different. You know, option market is I'm buying and you're selling, and we're making a side bet on the stock market. Mm -hmm. That's a zero-sum game. So you have to really, you know, parse things out a little bit, you know, like, There are certain parts within finance that are side bets and those are zero sum. And then there are certain things that are just buying a pieces of businesses, which in the long run, you're going to make money as an owner of businesses.
0: Uh, I mentioned rake, like some of these, uh, brokerage places, I noticed they claim to be charging no rake on trades. Is that, is there really no rake when you're, uh, essentially betting on the stock market? Is that even
1: true? I'm really glad you asked this question. It is absolutely not true that these peak these companies are showing up just for fun right like anyone just logical like do you guys think that they're just sitting there like hanging out for fun like making no money no like these guys showed they woke up in the morning to make money um now i'm not a huge fan of these these this whole idea because what what's happening is they're not charging you a commission but they're making money in other ways right would you rather see exactly how they're make taking money out of your pocket or would you rather them take money out of your pocket in ways you can't see as well? Um, so one common thing these, these places are doing is the sell order flow. So what that means is, let's say uh, there's like 10,000 of you trading options on Robinhood. They might go to Susquehanna and a few other people and say, hey, um, I'll let you control, without getting too technical, I'll let you control all the Apple orders coming out of uh, Robinhood, and you got to pay me some money back. And Susquehanna will be like, sweet. And they'll do that. And you know, I'm just, I'm generalizing. I don't know what's going on in Apple or Susquehanna, but there's, that business is very active. So basically selling order flow. If you pull up the public filings for some of these brokerage firms, they'll talk about how much money they're making doing that. It's real money. Um, they also do things like this. Say you buy an airline stock, okay, and it's hard to borrow, right? So like a lot of airline stocks or whatever, some crappy hurts. you know, I saw people in Robinhood buying this bankrupt company. It's going to go bankrupt. Hurts you can lend out those shares to people that are shorting them. So the way short selling works is you have to borrow shares and sell them and then buy them back. If you borrow shares, sometimes there's not many shares to borrow and it can get expensive. Robin hood. I don't think people get paid money if they buy Hertz. They don't get that. They don't see any of that. I think Robin keeps that. So there are things that are happening behind the scenes that are, I mean, I'm not gonna say unethical, but like, don't kid yourself. Like these companies are making money. Yeah. It's not, it's not rake free. Yeah. Right.
0: Yeah. I figured that. Um, yeah. okay. There's like a, a commonly held belief. Like as we grow up, you know, my parents in high school, everybody says, uh, you know, if I take my IRA, if if I take my 401k and I put a bunch of mutual funds in it. And like you said, I sit on it. I check back in the 30 years, you know, if I'm not dead, then it's a print fest, right? Like I, I can't lose. Is it really that simple? And is that the best thing that people should be doing who like just want to throw some money at a 401k or an IRA or whatever?
1: I, I, I do believe that investing especially in tax efficient vehicles is a really good bet for most people. I mean, here's the thing, like you only have so many things to do with your money. Let's just say you're, you're, you're like my parents, right? My parents are, you know, of retirement age, you know, what are what are my parents going to like do with their money? What are their options? Like, okay. They buy real estate, you know? Okay. They're not buying Bitcoin. Okay. So buying real estate. Maybe they'll buy some gold a little bit. I don't know. Like there just aren't many options. And the, the Fed has basically made the bond market like super unattractive. Like the bond market, you know what you're getting if you close your eyes and get to the end. You're either getting the coupons plus your money back or you're getting a lot less if something happened. So the bond market, that's the thing that's right now is that the bond market's just not like, you guys aren't punting around the bond market right now. Like no one, no one seems to be talking about like, Oh man, I got like the 10 year bonds. I'm trading. (laughs) No one's doing that because it's boring and you can't close your eyes and buy that stuff. You get like one, 2% or whatever. So there's just not many options. That's the thing. That's part of why the stock market keeps going up is like people like my parents and people like random Joe Schmo, they don't have anything to put the money in. And it is, it is a huge favor to be, up money in a 30-year period. Huge, 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 huge favor. I mean, I think you'd have to really, really poorly time that to like not get a decent return on that. So I think for most people it makes sense. It's not great. Like I think this idea that it's some like amazing, awesome, long-term crushing thing is, it's just better than nothing. And you know how many people have money in checking accounts and just sitting there? Like it's just better than that. That's how I look at it.
0: Yeah, it just seems it just seems too simple, but uh, yeah, I, I guess that makes sense. Um, I wanted to ask about uh, you know, this whole idea of thirty years, and so uh, like, let me find this question that I had here because God, I mean, this is this drives me crazy. So people all love to brag about like their mix, misconception, I think, on gains they make, right? Like people re- rarely seem to actually withdraw or sell stocks, right? They just talk about how much they're up, right? But really. It's just on paper, right? Like they say, oh, I'm up 60% or whatever. But then something like 2008 happens or something like COVID happens. And they say, well, you know, that's just a fluke thing, you know, but, but is it right? Like, yeah, the market goes up slowly and slowly and slowly for a few years or a decade, but eventually something happens, right? Like something always seems to happen. So I get what you're saying about 30 years, but I'm not sure that like people just write off this stuff as like flukes when it seems like it happens all the time. Like these tail events happen every five years, every 10 years. Am I, do you see what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, no, I see, and listen, there's a good book a lot of people read called The Black Swan by Talib, and it right. sort of goes into those kind of things. Listen, yeah, the financial world underestimates tails for sure. I mean, you can have a whole series of podcasts on that. Um, I think the thing is, is like, as long as you're sort of, for most people who are like younger who are making money, if they're just sort of consistent about investing and not really trying to time things, like you're probably going to be okay in the long run. It, you know, stock market goes down, you buy more. It's the people that, you know, like, here's the thing about investing. There are really good times to invest and there's like not as good times to invest. Like this idea that like investing is like always the same expected value. Like there's clearly good times and and less good times. And a lot of people put themselves in spots where they can't fire those bullets when the good times are there. And that's the art of investing. If you look at like the success of someone over 30 years, it's really going to come down to like when 2008 happened, did they freak out and sell everything? Okay. They did bad. Like in 2008, were they buying? Okay, they did good. Like that's Mm -hmm. really the difference. When COVID happened, were you freaking out and selling or were you buying? And that's not to be saying there weren't scary things about COVID or reasons to sell or, you know, a lot of people um, needed money or whatever. I just think that the best investors are able to be on offense when other people are on defense. And that's why like not, not overthinking it, not trying to trade and just like investing is like definitely plus EV and definitely easy to do the other thing is, is just, it's very easy to pay attention to taxes. Like I've seen people that like buy a stock that goes way up and I'm like, all right, you're probably supposed to figure out a way to hold this for a year. You know, there's a big difference in tax rate, a big difference in EV. So I think just like a very basic understanding of taxes is also super helpful. I see people making like gigantic blunders when it comes to taxes, mm-hmm. you know, there's almost no reason to sell a stock that went way up for a short term capital gain. Like that is, that is, like there are other things you can do. You can use options to hedge. There are things you can do not to do that. So I think if you just combine like a very basic understanding of taxes, um, what kind of trade should I do on my IRA? What kind of trade should I do in my interactive brokers account? When the market goes down, you know, things like selling losers and buying other stocks makes to generate losses. Like very basic things like that. Just like not freaking out when things are going bad. Um, understanding taxes and just being consistent over time is definitely like what makes a big difference over 30 years
0: yeah that certainly makes uh, a ton of sense um i want to ask about the skill sets of traders or people are in options and how you compare them to poker and dfs like do you think that most good poker and dfs players would have success if they put all this time into wall street or is there really something different that goes on on the wall street stuff that a lot of successful poker or dfs players don't have
1: you have to separate Wall Street into two things. One of them is like a career at a bank or at a fund or at some place that's like a, a, a business like that versus trading in your underwear on E-Trade. Like mm-hmm. those are two different things. I, I personally think that the, the first place, if you can get a job at a fund or a job at a bank or a job working with someone that knows what they're doing, I think you it's a, it's a huge place to succeed. Like, I've hired poker people with poker backgrounds before. I mean, there's, um, I don't know if you know, there's a poker crew like uh, Donnie Stern, uh, Brian, uh, whatever, Flawless Victory, Emil Patel. They're all trading together. And I heard they're doing great. And so they're, and you can go, you can like the, the Susquehanna guys, like Jeff Yass is a poker guy, right? Like, I think there's a long, there's no doubt it's a good way to transition in. But a lot of people think that means like, okay, I can trade in my interactive brokers account and I can do this like on my own the same way I learned poker, learn DFS. The tools are not the same. Like everyone always asks me like, Hey, like what's the run at once version of trading doesn't mm-hmm. exist. Like what's the, the, you know, whatever. I'm not as familiar. Roto world. What's the, what are the best sources of data? That's your one whatever. But you know, they, they don't exist in poker and trading. Excuse me. What's the best YouTube videos to watch? They don't exist. They're all shit. So I think that's the thing is that the tools are not there for people to go out on their own and trade in my opinion. And I I give a lot of respect to people that make a living like that. But I think the best thing to do, the best way to do it is to to take your skills and go join an organization like Susquehanna where you can get training. You can be around people that know what's going on. That's the way to do it. Not try to do it the same way you learn DFS on your own, the same way you learn Pokemon.
0: Yeah, I think that makes sense. I'm going to ask another question about that in a second, but I, I have to ask the biggest donkey question before we go any further. Uh, what exactly makes a stock go up and down? I know that sounds really dumb, but like, it's not dumb. I, there are
1: no dumb questions, man.
0: Yeah. Okay. So I, I do think where I project ownership in DFS contests, right? And mm-hmm. so this is like, you know, I think I'm pretty good at it and pretty accurate. And the way I do it is partly through. Uh, a player's raw projection you know, versus salary, but a lot of it is just simple public perception. What is the market actually thinks of it, not what a player's actual value is, if that makes sense. And it seems to me from watching stocks, a lot of that is the same thing. Like, you know, Warren Buffett says he sells all his airlines and all of a sudden it tanks. So what is actually making a stock go up and down? And does the stock price actually reflect how a company is actually doing in real life?
1: So- it's very simple. stock price just moves up and down when people are trying to buy and trying to sell. And it sounds like a stupid answer, but it's the truth. So like when you go and buy a share, there's an elect, in all likelihood, there's an electronic market maker, like a bookie on the other side of it, okay? And they're probably a penny apart on the stock you're trying to buy. So you're buying Penn Gaming, it's 3410, 3411, okay? They're out there, they're trying to pay 10 or sell it at 11 all day. Mm-hmm. The VIG is super tight, by the way, in finance compared to uh, what you're used to, sports betting. So there's someone out there willing and by the way, those people are getting paid a little bit extra by the exchanges. So like the vig's a little bit better for them than what it is for you. The exchanges try to do things to entice people to trade. And what that, what, so they want tight markets. They want low vig markets. So they pay, they pay a little bit cut back to the people that provide those tight markets. Um, it's kind of like in a casino, like when you have those props, there to start the game. Like there's mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Um, so when you go buy a stock, you know, okay. 34, 10, 34, you bought the thirty four eleven kind. Now they're 34, 34, 12. Okay. And that's what they're doing all day. They're moving up and down with supply and demand. It's very, very straightforward. Now, why people are doing that? I mean, there's all sorts of things like we pointed out don't make any sense. Like, for example, when Elon Musk launched his rocket into space, Tesla moved on it. Like, okay, what does Tesla have to do with the rocket? Like, okay, I know Elon, you know, does both those companies. But like, that doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. I saw people trading options. They were were buying options on Tesla for the SpaceX launch. Like, that doesn't, in theory, it doesn't make any sense, but ultimately, all that matters is: could it move the stock? Yes or no? And then, maybe the option market will be correct about that, those kind of things. Um, but yeah, long story short, supply and demand. Now, you know, there's that famous Reddit thing, Wall Street bets, and I think they got a lot of people's attention, um, like about a year ago, in Tesla. You know, all these guys, sort of, uh, on this forum, were like, "Let's just go out and just buy a bunch of calls in Tesla," and they all did that, and the stock went up, and they all made money, and they all kept doing it right so there, there's also like some just like herd mentality type of stuff happening momentum stocks you see that now with Penn. like all these barstool fans are in there pounding it and um yeah it's like it doesn't have to make sense but what moves them is supply and demand that's it
0: right so it doesn't really have anything to do with how a company is doing i understand that some people might buy or might sell based on a company's earnings reports or whatever but really it's just perception just like a perception. dfs player's ownership per- pure
1: perception it the, a stock can always go higher from where it is, always go lower from where it is. It is. There's just no rules. It's just where people decide to buy and sell it that day. That's all yeah. it is.
0: And so for me, like investing in like a startup makes more sense, right? Like, hey, I'll buy a piece of your private company for X and, you know, hopefully it gets acquired one day or or at least, you know, makes a lot of money and it does distributions. You know, that makes sense because I'm betting on whether the company is actually going to do well. When I buy a stock on the stock market, it feels like instead of betting on whether the company's going to do well or not. I'm actually betting on what the public perception of the company is going to be down the line, right?
1: The idea, the idea is that if you close your eyes for five or 10 years and open them, right, your results would be very similar to a public, private investment. Like same way, like if you invest in a private company, you close your eyes, open them five years later, like, okay, you're going to really make or lose based on how the company did. It shouldn't be the same thing in stocks, right? I think the way to think about it is a lot of the short-term stuff is kind of like noisy, it can be very noisy or, or a little bit noisy. But like the truth is, if you buy a pen right now and you close your eyes and open them in 10 years, it's going to matter how things went. It's not just randomness. So I think it really depends on the time frame. And if you're trading stocks on like a short term basis, you're right. It's just it's probably uh, negative EV gambling for most people.
0: Yeah. And so these guys that are like day trading like on on E-Trader or whatever they're doing, I mean, they're just like straight gambling on public perception. Right. It has nothing to do with how the company is going to do.
1: Most of what's going on there is called technical analysis. What people are doing, like short-term trading, and that's really on a high level is, first of all, I'm not a fan. I've said that before. Like, not a fan of it. Not saying it's not doesn't work or doesn't work. It's just not how I do things. But basically, imagine like trying to study that noise. It's kind of the science of that noise. It's the science of supply and demand and studying those noise. Like, obviously, the idea is that some of the patterns that have happened over time, because the stock market's human behavior will repeat, and so technical analysis, the study of that, the, the reason why I don't think it's really that great for most people to sit there and try to learn that on their own is that computers should be very good at that stuff. Just mm-hmm. think about it. Like all recognizing past patterns and then looking at the market today and trying to find the right trades. Like that's a computer job in you know 2020. That's not like some guy studying charts in my opinion, again, my opinion, but, um, But that's what most people are doing. They're doing technical analysis. And most of those guys, when earnings are coming up, they have no position. Like, they're not betting on, like, are they going to – is Macy's going to beat or miss the quarter? Like, no one's betting on that. They're just betting on studying the noise leading up to things or the noise of trading. And I think that's a very, 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 very hard way to make money. And I always discourage people from going that route.
0: Um, Okay. I I mentioned it earlier, but, you know, I I think it's pretty obvious why all these – DFS guys and sports betting guys are all of a sudden they're experts in stocks and, you know, Korean baseball and, and whatever, e- e- you know, e- economics, whatever, like legal legends. Yeah. Yeah. Legal legends, you know, like they're just, there's just guys who like to gamble and people who are good at it. I, I think there's, you know, people who can take a set of data and apply it to many different things. I think a lot of them, it's just, you know, a joke. They just want to gamble. And so now they want to gamble on the stock market instead of sports. But anyways, you said you've noticed a spike in interest from normal guys. Is it been a big enough to spike to actually affect the market? Like is it actually that is it actually that stocks are going up because there's so many people on this Robin Hood? Because I know there's people trading seven figures, eight figures a day. If people are betting, you know, a couple thousand, ten thousand a day, is that really affecting the market at all during this corona period? It's
1: a debate. Like in my circles, it's something we talk about. Like we're like, all right, how much of this is actually mattering? Obviously, look at Penn. For sure it's mattering. Like you can't even debate. So obviously you look at certain stocks, it's like no question it's having an effect. I think it's hard to deny, like, like I was saying before, like the actual, the actual like uh sort of poker players that I talk with about markets, they've actually done insanely well the last few months. And not just not just the rally, also the the way down. Like poker players were, I don't know DFS, but poker players were like way ahead of coronavirus mm-hmm. compared to the market. And a lot of them realized it. They were like, "Oh my gosh!" Like, I think this is gonna be worse than what the market's expecting. And the truth is, they were right. Like, and it's very hard to find edge in markets. But I do feel like I knew some people in poker that had edge in markets based off of their understanding of Corona. Now, since the virus hit, and then you know, stocks went down, then a lot of people, I think, got kind of. I mean, some of this stuff is just lucky. I mean, like, I, I don't know how to say it. Like. The, there are a lot of people piling in, it's working. And like to your original question, there's no doubt that's what's happening right now. Like uh, whether whether it's just the small investor doing it or there are a lot of professionals also doing it, that's sort of up for debate. Um, but yeah, effectively once the government stepped in and said the crappiest companies are not gonna struggle to borrow money, it's just been freaking crazy since then. And uh, yeah, it is what it is. I know. It's a debate for, for another time, for sure. But yeah, as
0: someone who doesn't know very much, it doesn't, it seems to make very little sense to me. If you run a shitty business and you can't survive, you know, two or three months of no income, well, maybe you should, you know, have to go bankrupt.
1: Well, so hang on. So back to that point, Here, here's the issue with that. So say every casino borrows five times their profit. Okay. And let's say you start your casino. You're like, fuck that. Like, I don't want a problem. I just want to borrow two times. What's going to happen is All the guys borrowing five times, they're going to make more money. Because when you borrow more money and you you it amplifies your returns, you're going to make more money. So every casino company out there except yours is going to be printing. And you're going to be printing less. And so when times are good, public shareholders are going to say, this guy Adam doesn't know what he's doing. Like his returns suck. Everyone, he's being too careful. You'd be out of a job. Mm -hmm. So basically every industry, restaurant, casino, cruise line, airline, they all sort of arrive at like a market acceptable amount of risk. And if you're the one company not taking that risk, they're going to throw you out because that's the way it works. The shareholders will vote management teams out. And so unfortunately that's kind of the market kind of did it to itself. Like the market basically said, here's the acceptable amount of risk the casino is supposed to take. Now going forward, I expect it to be different. Mm -hmm. Um, I I really do think you're going to see many, many years of these companies building up cash paying down debt getting into a situation where if this happened again now all the shareholders are going to be like well what happens when the next virus hits are you going to be ready they're all going to have a plan they're all going to be safer blah 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 but it's not really fair to say like uh these companies specifically fucked up it's more like the market sort of told them what to do
0: right yeah that makes sense that that should be more widely known uh your point right there instead of everybody just burying the companies like me um okay we've heard a lot about mutual funds when you're, when you're like, you know, uh, talk to your IRA or 401k person where they're like, Hey, just buy a bunch of mutual funds, check back in. And 30 yeah, buy
1: By buy like low cost passive, like Vanguard type stuff. Like that's right. what, it, it makes a big difference. I would not touch anything with like a actively thing or a management thing, like just buy like just the super cheap index funds.
0: So should, should regular people actually even be buying, Individual stocks, or should regular people who don't really want to mess around, should we just be buying those low co- those low fee uh, mutual funds?
1: Yeah, like I don't know, I, I I think a mixture of both is fine. I think it really comes down to the fact that just don't like take it too seriously. Like, just understand that like you're not a professional investor. Um, okay, maybe you like you know pen gaming or whatever. Put like a small percentage of your net worth in there and, and move on. I think. I do think though, like there are some people that are like sort of part-time investors. Like what I said earlier, I think trading as a hobby is really, really not a great hobby, but I think investing is a much better part-time hobby. I do think people that are willing to do the work, especially if you're digging into stuff that's under the radar, like less efficient, like you're, you know, basically you're playing, you're paying, playing raz you're playing, playing Korean baseball, DFS or whatever. You're mm-hmm. playing a game that's like less efficient. Although the RAS is pretty efficient, but less efficient. And you're digging into these things that other people aren't looking at. I think the people that are investing in Tesla, investing in, you know, you know whatever, pick your, take your, pick your favorite stock. I don't think that those people are necessarily great investors. Um, but there are a lot of people that are sort of churning through underlooked companies in their spare time. I know some doctors that when they have a weekend or they're free, they like to read financial statements and, and, and try to build models and try to invest in companies. I think they can win. I think you can win doing that. I also think investing, that's the thing about investing, like even if you're not good, it still probably makes money because you're, you're buying something, a piece of a business that's hopefully has a plus EV in the long term. So I think that kind of stuff is, I support that kind of stuff. Um, I think though it's totally fine just to buy index funds and not, t- not, not try to spend any time on it. I think most people are better off spending time making money in whatever they're good at than like trying to figure out the market.
0: For sure. Uh, you, you mentioned some stocks that like, you know, people know, you know, Tesla or, Amazon or whatever, I think people have like a natural inclination to just like buy whatever they know, you know, like I know the casino business or whatever, so I'm gonna buy right. DraftKings or Win or MGM or you know, I use, I don't know, you know, I use Bank of America, so I'm gonna buy Bank of America stock. That seems like a huge leak to me, but I've heard like actual financial people say, hey, buy what you know, that can't be right, can it?
1: I think it's kind of fishy advice. <clears throat> yeah. I here's the thing about investing. The best thing to do if you don't know what you're doing is just don't pay any fees buy something low cost thing and don't think about it. That's the best thing to do if you don't know what you're doing. It's not the best way to invest, but it's better than other things that people do like try to build their own portfolios when they don't know what they're doing. Uh, put money in an actively managed fund that isn't a good actively managed fund, things like that. Professional investors that invest for a living, they're not just putting the money in index funds. They're trying to do other things to that. And I think generally speaking, like the best form of investment is active management. In my opinion, I'm biased. I work in active management, but the thing about active management is that as as a whole, it is terrible. So like the very best in the very best investing, in my opinion, is if you can hire professionals that are very good at what they're doing, they're better than the market or better than whatever benchmark that that's appropriate. And you pay them a vig, and you move on. It's like poker staking is a good example. Like a good, way to, a good way to stake a poker player isn't to find the, the horse that takes the shittiest deal. Like that's not a good way of doing it. Like the best way of staking someone is finding value in a stake. And I think it's the same thing with active management. You can find people that can charge you money, but it's worth it to pay them. Sure. And finding those people is hard, especially if you have a crappy financial advisor and that's a whole nother spiel is that that industry is just complete drag on everything. Um, but yeah, if you think about the worst thing to do. Hire a financial advisor to pay them 1%, have them pick funds that charge another 1% and then have them, those funds underperform the market. Like it's, it's shocking, but that's what a lot of people do. And, uh, yeah, that's insane. So like, that's what I say. Like, basically there are ways of just like not being a donkey that are easy, but it's actually hard to like be better than that. And most people shouldn't try.
0: Um okay, I think that's a good place to leave it on stocks I got to ask you about d f s though why are you not in the d f s streets you seem like you got some money it seems like you're in poker you're in you're in gambling why are you not in the d f s streets
1: dude i try i mean here's the thing i have to i live in the i live in one of those shitty states with taxes it's it's like it's like so stupid so like basically i can't write off gambling losses so like when you when you i i hope this issue gets more attention from people that care about this kind of shit because like let's just say i i have like i lose money like i i enter two hundred thousand of entries i get back 180 i lose 20 grand when i go do my state taxes i get murdered on it so like i don't know like i, because I guess people mean because they
0: because the state of oklahoma classifies it as 200 200 dollars win and they don't write off your 180 loss
1: they cap the losses to something stupid like 15 grand or 10 grand or something right. yeah so like you basically like if you think about like how the taxes work in my state, stupid, and they're like, they're like 10 other states that do this. And like, you talk to a tax pro, they basically tell you, well, if you want to do this, you can't live in one of these states. And it's, it's, it's actually like really freaking stupid. And someone should take these guys to court because it's just not fair. I mean, it's just not like, I think you'd win in court on this thing. So like, for a while I thought about doing that.
0: But the DraftKings, when DraftKings sends you a 1099, uh, they net it out for you. And that's not what's reported to the state of Oklahoma?
1: So i mean, we have I don't to get into it. I don't even know if I've had a winning year on DraftKings. So all I can tell you is what I get is a fucking thing of buy-ins and like <laughs> losses, basically. And if you report, you have to if you give it to an accountant, they report gains and they report your losses on separate line items. There's no netting, and that's what I've been told by like people that know how to do taxes. And I don't th- I actually think that uh, it's the same thing in poker tournaments. Like I've played a way a lot a way less poker tournaments because it's the same thing. Like if I buy if I buy into like a hundred thousand dollars worth of poker tournaments and I break even, I'm a huge loser in taxes. Right. That's so so I don't know. I it's really crazy. It, it's actually affected. Like my favorite DFS sport is golf. Like I think it's just dominant. Like it's so much fun. Such a great sweat. And it's also like so freaking noisy like i don't i i generally feel like the the super pros in that don't have a big edge on me like as long as i'm not making too many i mean i'm dfs fish but as long as i'm not making too many huge mistakes i feel like it's hard to like get it in super bad in golf and it's a great sweat so um so yeah that's my favorite thing to do and it's really like i still do that so i still like playing golf that's the fun one i just you just taxes aside like it's too much fun to pass up
0: so yeah no golf is so 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 fun i i agree that there's not a big edge to be had and if people Uh, I think that there is, I think they're lying to themselves, but it's so, so, so fun. All right. Before we get you, get you out of here, I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about this DraftKings stock. I know you don't want to comment on individual stocks, but most people listening to this, I'm sure, are aware that DraftKings went public like a month ago. Stock has like doubled, maybe more, uh, since then. And I think a large part of it is, is people know DraftKings, people want exposure to sports betting. They're like, hell. DraftKings uh came from a huge underdog position against FanDuel and won. They think that they can do the same thing and they're uniquely positioned, it seems at least from a tech side to win on the sports betting side as well. All that said, a lot of uh sharper people in financials say this DraftKings thing is out of control. They're priced at this at this ridiculous valuation now. I don't know if you can say or if you want to say, but any comments yeah, yeah, no, on what's going to... on with DraftKings stock.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, okay, I think it was last time I checked, it was $13 billion, right? which is a staggering number. You can appreciate what kind of number that is. I mean, it's a staggering number. And, um, if you bought the whole company right now for 13 billion and you close your eyes and you tried to make back your 13 billion, it would take a long time. Like you're probably an underdog to get there, but maybe not. But like at, at very, very least, I mean, I think their financials were again, like what they made a in revenue and lost money. Right. So you have to go from that to pay, making back your 13 billion investment it would be very, very challenging. But that's not really the game we're playing right now. Um, I do think what you touched on is the reason why it's gone bananas is that it's a, it's a scarce asset, you know, in the world that we're in the world that we're going into where sports betting is more acceptable, more, more widely accepted. And there are all these gigantic media companies out there like Disney or whoever that have, that would love to get involved in the space. There is a, there is a, like a, it's not just a normal like cash flow spreadsheet valuation. Like there's a there's a, gonna be a premium to that because of where they are. They're basically a monopoly on, on this market that's very exciting for people. And when you start getting into things like that, you know, like I said, Tesla, electric cars, like people start saying, wow, every car is gonna be electric and well, and they, you know, you can get really carried away. That's what's happening with DraftKings. And I don't necessarily think it's overvalued or undervalued. I just think people are starting to appreciate that there is a scarcity thing here. Now, the, what the financial pros are doing is they're putting it into Excel, okay, and they're running the numbers. And they're like, this doesn't make any freaking sense. Mm-hmm. Like, you would never buy a hot dog stand using this math, right? You would never do that. It doesn't make any sense. But you're not buying a hot dog stand. And there's a long history of companies that want to get involved in a space they're not in and they need to buy their way in. And uh, they're the they're they're super logical to buy. So, like, and and what they pay, it's very up in the air, but, like, they're in a great spot right now they got bailed out let's just call it is what it is without legalized sports betting mm-hmm. we're not talking about DraftKings like it is right now but no for sure right place right time and uh i mean i think if you're one of those DraftKings insiders with like you know 80 percent of your net worth in there it's it's or, or probably 99 percent of your net worth in there or whatever like it's be very smart to sort of diversify a little bit but i get why it's gone up and and uh like yeah like it wouldn't shock me if like three years from now, some media company paid 20 billion for DraftKings. It sounds ridiculous, but like if they want to get in the space, it's the best way. It's probably easier than trying to start up an, another DraftKings or whatever. For sure.
0: Yeah. Okay. i learned a ton. I really appreciate it. Jason, cool, tell, the, tell the people where they can find you if they if you even want them to find you. I don't know if they want to Oh yeah, just you
1: Twitter. Uh, Twitter. I, I, I'm getting my Twitter followers up, at Strassa too. Yeah, I got my Twitter. I'm almost at 2000. Yeah, I'm getting up in there. So that's the best way And um I'm always like, I'm always willing to talk to people. Like, so I, I probably take a phone call a week from a poker player or a gambler that's trying to get into finance or whatever. I'm um, always happy to help people that are looking to learn more about finance or whatever. Just shoot me a DM, hit me up, yeah. slide in there. Yeah.
0: Yeah, you're gonna, you're gonna regret that. You're gonna, have, you're gonna have a whole bunch of people sliding in. All right, uh, I can handle
1: it, I can handle
0: it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, follow Jason on Twitter. He invited you to slide into the DMs. I don't know, that seems, seems super risky to me, uh, <laughs> Jason, but it's what it is. Uh, all right, thank you all for listening. For Jason, for producer Luke, I am Adam. Good luck, everybody.